Heavenly Father, we pray that we would lean upon Your Spirit, not our own understanding. We would trust in the Lord with all our heart so that You might show us the depths of these truths in Your Word, that we would be changed in our loves, in our minds, in our actions, to be Your people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear God's Word from Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. These are the very words of God. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The entertainment in our culture these days, our books and our streaming services are filled with stories about people who are trying to prove themselves. Or sometimes their cars, like Lightning McQueen, as he's training on the NASCAR circuit and trains under the eye of the Hudson Hornet. Or of the, we think of the Hickory Huskers and their new head coach in the movie Hoosiers. If you've not seen that, it's okay. It's probably before your time. Or Jane Eyre, whose childhood as an orphan and whose trials throughout her life present her with difficulties to overcome along the way. And how does the world encourage us to prove ourselves in these stories? Well, by following true love's desires. By being true to ourselves, by training hard, or in the best of our Hollywood morals, by diligence and honesty and learning to care about others. The Bible teaches us a very different way. These are not the ways that we prove ourselves. This is not where we find our purpose and our success. What we're going to hear in our passage today is not a self-determination, moral, self-help story. Joshua's leadership is going to be put to the test. Moses had led the people. And the question is whether Joshua is the rightful successor to that leadership. Moses had conquered Sihon and Og. And Joshua's succession is yet to be proved in battle. Though certainly God did exalt him and affirmed his call with the crossing of the Jordan River. But here we see Joshua come in preparation to fight his first military enemy, Jericho. And even though our passage today comes at the end of chapter 5, let's not be deceived. That chapter change at verse 6 is an unhelpful divide. This is a part of that story of chapter 6. This is Joshua's preparation to go up to Jericho because our very first phrase in verse 13 is when Joshua was by Jericho, now our sights are set on what is next, the battle at Jericho. 
Since Joshua was commanded by God back in chapter 1 to be strong and courageous, and since he has led a nation through the Jordan River with 40,000 men armed and ready for battle in chapters 3 and 4, and since he stands near the adversaries in Jericho here in chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 5, we eagerly await what will happen. Will he be the leader Israel needs in the face of this enemy? Or will he be weak and cowardly? In Joshua's encounter with the commander of the Lord's army today, we will examine what God says in three parts. First, friend or foe? Who is this commander, friend or foe? Second, God or man? And third, should Joshua resist or submit? Friend or foe, God or man, resist or submit? Let's look at friend or foe. This comes from our first two verses. It says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. The first thing Joshua probably noticed was that this man had a sword, a drawn sword in his hand. This is a sign of judgment. This is not necessarily a friendly greeting. There are two other instances where someone in the Bible encounters a being holding a drawn sword. First was Balaam and the donkey. The donkey saw the angel before Balaam did, but the the angel of the Lord stood in the way with the drawn sword, ready to strike down Balaam in judgment. Another time was in David's census in 1 Chronicles when the angel was sent to destroy Jerusalem. David saw him standing between earth and heaven and in his hand, a drawn sword. We're not speaking of a chubby Christmas cherub. This is a powerful display of heavenly authority and of judgment from God in this being holding a drawn sword. And this is evidence of God's complete control over Joshua, over Israel, over Jericho, over all of the land and over the entire extent of the created world. And as he stands with a display of judgment, it reminds us who gets the final say. It reminds us of who the final arbiter of right and wrong is. And it's no one on earth. It's no earthly authority, not even Joshua, the leader of the nation of Israel, who has this authority. The power belongs to heaven. This powerful display to Joshua definitely had immediate hints of a heavenly power and the way it's described to us in chapter 5 shows us this is not a normal man. But the text does call him a man and so for the time we're going to leave the question of his origin unanswered and we will turn to that in part 2. But Joshua asks him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Joshua's question is, are you for Israel or are you for Jericho? And the commander of the Lord's army says, no. Every parent's and teacher's favorite response to the false dichotomy presented by a child. No. Joshua's categories are wrong. The world does not exist truly in the visible categories of us versus them, of our army versus their army. There's a deeper reality, a more important distinction that the commander of the Lord's army operates by. And so to say that he is for Israel or he is for Jericho would not be accurate, and it does not capture the complexity 
of what the commander of the Lord's army is standing upon. And so he responds. He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. This is a comparison. Joshua, how's your army? Uh, 40,000 men armed, ready for battle. Well, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. All forces in heaven and on earth, all authority belongs to God. This one controls all army, all of the Lord's army. This designation sounds like an angelic being, but it's definitely a heavenly being because this word commander is also translated prince, but it's closely tied to the angelic host in the book of Daniel. And in other places, it's always tied with military and general leadership across its various uses. But under the command of this person is the Lord Yahweh's army. Yahweh, the one true God over all heaven and earth, his army follows the commands of this person whose sword is drawn in front of Joshua. This is not a mere human. And the commander cares a lot less about helping this nation versus that nation than he does about helping the Lord's purposes and the Lord's kingdoms. We're so prone to think that either I'm right or they're right, and the Lord either helps me or helps them. The way God works is far deeper than that. You have to go back to the covenant with Abraham to start to understand what the commander of the Lord's army is about. When God made that covenant with Abraham, he said, your descendants will return to this very land, the one in which the Israelites stand now. But it will not be for 400 years because the sins of the Amorites is not yet complete. I've referenced that. But it's important for us to understand that. The sin of the Amorites, the people in the land of Canaan, their sin was not yet complete. What was it that God was about with the Amorites? It was about their sin. And what does God do towards sin but judge sin? Remember, God has promised that when the sin of the Amorites is complete, the people would have the land and the people come into the land. So what is the main concern of the commander of the Lord's army? Sin the sin of the people of the land. And so Israel, by the hand of God, enters this land to purge wickedness from the land. And a lot of us look at this and say, I just don't like that. It doesn't seem fair to push these people out of the land. Well, let's think of it this way. Some people are more okay with the fact that Israel was exiled from the land by Assyria and Babylon. Why? Well, because the Old Testament goes to great lengths to tell us how wicked they were. The Old Testament shows how they had forsaken God. I think it's fair for us to think that the people of the land were no less wicked than Israel. Their sin no less deserving of the judgment for their sin. Was it just when Israel was exiled at the hand of Assyria and Babylon? Yes. Is, it, is God justified in eliminating the wickedness of the peoples of Canaan now by the hand of Israel? Yes. Because the sin of the Amorites is now ready for judgment according to God's perfect timing. And what we'll see is that God doesn't just go against the Amorites or just against Jericho or just against, against one people group. He is not just for Israel or for her adversaries. He is for people within Israel and people outside of Israel. 
And he is against people within, his, is within Israel and people outside of Israel. Because we're going to see in chapter 6 that he does judge Jericho. Yet who was saved? Rahab, by her faith. And then we'll see in chapter 7, Israel is spared and given the salvation, but are all welcomed and saved? No, Achan is punished for his unbelief. God cares more about the division of belief and unbelief than he does about our army versus their army. And this commander is far stronger than Israel's 40,000 men, and he has God's perfect view of justice to eradicate evil and to promote the holiness and the glory of God. He cannot be just for one human force or another. He is for God's glory. That is point one, friend or foe. Now, point two, God or man. Let's start in verse 14, halfway through, and we'll read this. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Here, I want to make the point, this is not just a man, this is not even just an angel or an archangel, because they don't receive worship. This is an appearance of God himself. The word we use in the theology world, you may have heard of this, is a theophany, an appearance of God. So, the first helpful look into the scene here. You may notice when you read verse 15, this sounds very reminiscent of an earlier case where God had said, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. That was with Moses at the burning bush. Remember that in Exodus 3? And so what this does is it shows us actually Joshua is Moses' successor in the fact that he has encountered the holy ground of God. And second, when this direct quote about removing sandals and the holy ground has been used of the incomparable presence of God himself, it helps us see whose presence Joshua now finds himself in. Not a man, not just an angel, but God. For Joshua to have a similar encounter with God's very own presence validates him as a leader and it proves precisely what God promised to Joshua back in Joshua 1. He said, be strong and courageous. Why? For I will be with you wherever you go. And here God proves his presence once again to Joshua. Joshua took off his sandals in the commander's presence for this was the holy ground of God's very presence. This holiness is worth a sidebar. Holiness so far throughout the Old Testament, when you, you know, look at the, the Pentateuch, of course, it's always tied to God. It's, it's God alone is holy. But there are three specific elements to which holiness is directly tied. First is God's character. And you see this in places like Exodus 15, where it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. This is why worship is so appropriate when you encounter the holy God. God's weekly call for us to worship, that first thing you see in our order of worship in the bulletin, this is a very high honor that the holy God would invite people like us into his holy presence. And it's the most important duty for those who seek to revere God's holiness 
or else we downgrade God's holiness with our disregard of his character. And of course, in a sense, I am preaching to the choir because here you are on a Sunday morning worshiping God. Holiness is also tied to God's day. Perhaps more than any other place that I had seen related to who God is, it's, rela- it's tied to God's day. Here's one instance in Exodus 35. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. This is why honoring the Lord's day is so crucial for Christian obedience and Christian growth, for life and for flourishing. When you hear this church and other PCA churches and Reformed Presbyterian churches like ours that so emphasize the importance of the Lord's day, it's not out of some stuffy tradition. It's out of this respect for the holiness of who God is. And if we fail to set apart his day as holy, to cease from our six days of labor and to give him solemn worship and to rest in him, what we've done is downgraded his holiness with our disregard of his day. And third, holiness is tied to his presence. Exodus 15 says, you have guided the people you redeemed by your strength to your holy abode. And you know the holy of holies and you know the holy place in the temple where God is, is holy. And that's what Joshua encounters here. The presence of God where the ground becomes holy. Where God is, there is holiness. His all-consuming perfection that burns up his adversaries on every side. Joshua has come face to face with the holy God. And God's holiness precedes the charge to go and to obey which we'll see in in next week's passage because Joshua will respond properly in his commission from the Holy God. And others who encountered God's holiness before they were commissioned to go and work were Isaiah and Ezekiel and Mary and you. The life of every Christian, we encounter God's holiness as he charges us to go and to obey. An encounter with God cannot leave us unmotivated to worship. An encounter with God cannot leave us unmotivated to obey unless we are resisting his leadership like the adversaries do. Unless we are trying to operate in our own strength and with our own vision and for our military against others and disregard the Lord. And so by disregarding the Lord's day, by working on it or traveling on it or selfishly being idle on it, or by disregarding his presence in this place on Sunday and failing to be changed by his holiness through false worship or through heartless religious acts without true reverence, submission, even right now, is to disregard God's holiness. Brothers and sisters, I urge you, don't encounter God and his holiness, and leave unchanged, because that is the sign of a heart of stone. Live in daily repentance and faith, and bow down before him. Worship him. Serve him. Ask him what he would have you do, for he is the Lord. His holiness proves 
that Joshua has encountered God himself. This commander says something quite cryptic. In verse 14, he says, Now I have come. Some people say that uh, the narrative has been cut short and there was supposed to be something else here. I do not believe that because I think that phrase, now I have come, carries lots of meaning in and of itself. Because when God comes, things happen. Two instances I'll give you, although there are plenty of others. In Psalm 50, it talks about God coming and it says, our God comes, end of phrase. And then it explains. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. When God arrives, there is a mighty tempest. Psalm 98 puts it this way, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. The coming of God is one of power. And it says, it goes on, it says, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So when he comes and he judges Israel and Jericho, he does so with equity, with righteousness, according to God's standards of holiness. And as we move into the military action of chapter 6, even if you look at verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, The line is now blurred. Is this the same commander of the Lord's army, or is this different? Is this God speaking in a different way? With that line blurred, we must ask, is this commander God himself? And I say so, because his coming in judgment proves that this is God himself. So this is a theophany. God has appeared to Joshua. This is God himself come to be with his people as they come to face their enemies. He has come to be near them and to fight for them. First Corinthians 10 talks about how Christ was with Israel in the wilderness. And we saw how God was with Israel as they crossed through the Jordan. Has God left them now? No, he is with them and will be with them to the end. This helps us understand God has always sought to be near his people with his presence. And he has visibly done so at times throughout history. And you know that clearest example of God with us. Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. God with us. So this is not out of character for God to show up and to lead. And see how clearly... God's presence was implied here with this commander of the Lord's army. This is what we call a pre-incarnate. Before Jesus, before, before the second person became Jesus of Nazareth, this is a pre-incarnate revelation of Christ to Joshua. His holiness proves that this is God himself. His coming proves that this is God himself. And Joshua's response of worship proves that this is God himself. And so we're going to spend some time now looking at Joshua's worship of this commander of the Lord's army. And that moves us to our third point, resist or submit. Remember, Israel's looking for a leader. We're looking to see if Joshua is the right leader. And he is, is as of yet unproven in his military battle. God has called him to be strong and courageous. So what is his response? He falls down on his face. Well, is that strength? Is that courage? 
what we see most importantly here is that Joshua, as the leader of the people, has responded in faith. Joshua has responded in worship. He has not questioned the commander with resistance or skepticism. That question he asked him, are you for us or for our adversaries? That was a very typical question to ask when you encounter an armed soldier wandering through the wilderness. That was not questioning his authority. Joshua was not being a skeptic or a resister. Once the commander answered him, he submitted. His immediate response was to fall on his face, to bow down in worship and to ask what his role in serving the commander might be and what obedience looks like for him. This is precisely the strength and the courage that God's people needed in a leader. To bow down in faith before God is the most strength and courage that anyone can have. It is consistent with what God told Joshua in chapter 1. Be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. And the key to his strength and courage, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua proves himself here. To be the strong and courageous leader, not by a great act of machismo or self-determination. He proves himself by faith and by God's strength. What is Joshua's strength and courage? As he's preparing to go into battle against Jericho, as he stands by Jericho, it's that God is with him wherever he goes. And that God goes before him as they go up against Jericho. And his strength and courage come in his obedience. He bowed down in worship. He submitted himself to the true commander. There's no stronger posture in all of time or place than that of being bowed down in worship before the Lord our God. Because there, God promises to be our shelter and our defense, our fortress, our God in whom we trust. And he fights for us. And we'll see him do that in chapter 6. Joshua's best preparation for the battle of Jericho was accepting that fact that Joshua would not be fighting the battle of Jericho. God would be fighting the battle of Jericho. You know the song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho? One commentary I read titled this section, Joshua Did Not Fight the Battle of Jericho. It's very appropriate. Only those who depend on the Lord to fight for them move forward in strength. This commander who stood before Joshua in authority and judgment with a drawn sword is also the one in the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament too, we see this character who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This is the same commander. He's the same one who left his eternal throne in all his glory in heaven and took on the form of a human, of a servant, of a baby born in Bethlehem so that he might save his people. He is the same one who lived in perfect obedience to the law in his pure actions and in his heart of love toward the Father and toward his neighbor. He is the same one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, taking on his body, on that tree, the sins of all his children. 
He's the same one who powerfully and triumphantly rose from the dead against the power of Satan. And he stripped away the power of sin and death so that we might say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And because of him, we who believe have died to sin and live to righteousness. This is the strength that the commander of the Lord's army wields. And he's the same one who enables us to enter God's presence with confidence because of his merit. And this is the same one who will return once again with the sword of judgment, who will come on the clouds with a crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand to reap the earth. And with one swing will reap the entire earth, putting the grapes into the winepress of God's wrath. And he will execute judgment on all according to their deeds. Some met with judgment and some met with great blessing. So I must ask, How does he act in such varied ways to various people? Is it because some belong to Israel and some belong to Jericho? No. It turns out that Joshua's question to the commander really gets turned back on him. Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the core of this text truly is this. Are you for God or are you his adversary? Do you believe or is your heart hardened against him? And Joshua's response as he bowed down in worship and said, I am your servant. Tell me what to do. His response is, I'm for the Lord. Once he knows who God is, he doesn't require God to become a part of his own agenda. He surrenders his whole outlook to God's agenda. He had 40,000 men armed and ready to go to battle. And he put that aside because the Lord's will prevailed and Joshua submitted to it. The question is, are you for the Lord or are you for his adversaries? What differentiates a human's relationship to this commander is faith. Either you trust him or you trust yourself. Those who bow down to that powerful God-man Jesus and ask what he would require of you, those are the ones who have faith. Those are the ones who have strength. Those are the ones who stand upon God and not upon themselves. But those who never receive and rest upon Jesus and what he did on the cross, they're the ones who meet the sword of judgment. Do not be God's adversary who resists. We're going to see in coming chapters the judgment they receive. Do not be like God's adversaries who minimize his holiness with their actions or with their thoughts or with their use of his day or with their flippant attitude toward being in his presence in his house. Do not be like God's adversaries who refuse to forgive because they don't understand the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. Do not be like God's adversaries who try to manipulate him into being a pawn of their political or social or personal agenda. Do not be like God's adversaries who believe they must operate in their own strength. Be for God. Trust in him with all your heart. 
Repent of your resistance and your offenses against him. Bow down before his power. Receive Jesus' righteousness powerfully given to his children. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And from that place of trust, we live our lives in submission to the Lord. It's a blessed place. A place where we know we have received salvation even on that day of judgment. And from there, we pray to God and we meditate on his word and we obey his law. And it becomes the most important thing to us to be in God's presence. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I'll leave you with a depiction, perhaps legendary depiction of Martin Luther. This is a quote from Martin Luther as interpreted through Charles Spurgeon's readings of Martin Luther. Let's be the Martin Luthers who realize that unless we take our business of this world in the business of our hearts and the business of our minds and the business of our souls and of our relationships, unless we take this business to the Lord first, then we are powerless to begin our business. As an elder in the PCA, I can tell you the maintenance work of meetings and discussions and committees and so forth can be consuming. So when I imagine what Martin Luther did in the 1500s, standing up against the Roman Catholic Church, I cannot fathom how he had time to do all that he did. In fact, um, he spoke often of how he had lots of work to do. One year after he posted the 95 Theses with his 95 objections to the theology and practice of the Catholic Church, he went to Augsburg and had to defend his criticisms of the Catholic Church. And going into this, he knew in his biblical, biblical conviction that he could not back down. Although they, although they demanded that he recant, he refused. And what kind of preparation and work and time would go into preparing for this defense? A defense that would shape the future of the church all the way to this day? Hours upon hours. And Luther's been quoted in various ways, saying in effect that all he would do on a daily basis is work, work, work. And listening to this saying of Luther's, again quoted by Spurgeon, um, here's what he says. I have so much business to do today that I shall not be able to get through it with less than three hours of prayer. I know it seems simple, but it reflects a deep heart position. Whose business are you about? Is it your business that you want the Lord to help you do, or are you about the Lord's business? And do you admit that I cannot face all that I have to do today without bowing down before him and presenting my heart and my requests to him? Do I come and operate in my life out of worship for God first? Or does that just sift into the cracks? The more Luther had to do, the more he needed to pray or else he could not get through it. It's a blessed kind of logic. I pray that we will understand it. What task is before you, brothers and sisters? Personal, family, work, school. Prepare for it by giving it to God. 
bowed down to him in worship. Move from this place today, from, from the Lord's house, out of worship into everything that you do. And ask what God desires of you, his servant. He's the commander of the Lord's army. Who else is there to follow? Let's pray. Gracious God, we praise you that you show yourself to us, that you speak to us by your word, that we can encounter your blessed presence as we come into your house, as we fellowship with your believers, as we take of this sacrament together, as we hear your word preached. Give us strength and courage to respond in faith. We thank you for Jesus who has done it all for us. We pray that we would stand in his strength as we receive his righteousness and move forward with grace, knowing we have peace with you, our God, on that last day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.